0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on community radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians, continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it you're listening to 3cr 855 am on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au today we're going to iceland with the next episode of fear and wonder presented by ipcc author dr Joel Gergis and walkley award-winning journalist michael green this is with the kind permission of the conversation but first As we speak, the Greenpeace ship Rainbow Warrior is sailing along the West Australian coast, campaigning for whales, not Woodside. They are informed by the sixth IPCC report, which shows the ecocide we are ignoring if we do not stop the drilling. The Burrup Hub project is a plan to drill for oil and gas until 2070. Here is West Australian Green Senator Jordan Steele-John in the debate about the safeguard mechanism. I was in a rather delirious state with COVID. I was in quarantine up at Clunes and I was too tired to move the dial from the parliamentary radio channel. But it was surreal as I heard idiotic words and voices defending the jobs and wealth to be made by extracting more coal, oil and gas from parliamentarians, so-called representing country electorates. They are going to be worst hit by climate change. And then the confident voice of this young senator came on.
2: It uh, will be this. Um, I would like the minister to be able to provide the chamber um, with a with number of how many times Woodside energy group were consulted uh, during the crafting of the original uh, piece of legislation. Now as a preamble to my question I want to state clearly for the record and draw the Senate's attention to the reality um, that right now global temperatures are rising and have risen by about 1.2 degrees above their pre-industrial level and it is very clear from the work of the world's finest climate scientists that with every decade that goes past, every year that goes past, those temperatures continue to rise. Now the Paris Agreement goal, adopted just eight years ago uh, in 2015, was to limit the global temperature rise uh, to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century. We are already, as I say, at 1.2 degrees Celsius and on track for another 0.2 degrees of warming as we go through this decade. The reality that we are faced with now as a species upon this planet is that with every single year that passes without meaningful action on climate uh, is a year in which we slip closer to an irretrievable climate change. Disaster. What exactly that will mean in real terms is difficult to comprehend when we are already seeing catastrophic once-in-a-generation climate events unfolding at an alarming regularity. These dire straits are reflected in the final part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's uh, sixth annual report released last week. This is the world's official body for the assessment of climate change, telling us in the clearest possible terms, and not for the first time, uh, that we need a rapid, deep, systems-wide emissions reduction programme. The time, as they say, is well and truly up. The climate bomb is uncomfortably close to boom time. In an idealistic view... And I, I say this generously. An idealistic view of the Safeguards Mechanism Bill, Labour introduced to the House, uh, is that it was an attempt to defuse that bomb. A more realistic view is that this was largely a piece of legislation built on smoke and mirrors, or smoke, more precisely, as we uh, as or wood smoke more precisely as we stare down the barrel of another potentially catastrophic La Nina summer this year. Because the bill that Labor originally presented to the House was not in fact a climate bill. By its design it allowed big cashed up polluters to continue business as usual. All that they would need to do would be to find a little bit more cash by making a little bit more money from the next global energy crisis to buy some crappy offsets to offset their big pollution and exceed their allocated level of pollution. By design, Labour's original bill allowed big polluters to offset 100% of their emissions, something many nations, economically and ideologically comparable to Australia, had made illegal. By design, Labour's original bill allowed big polluters to increase their emissions, as long as their number crunchers were good enough at their jobs to make it look otherwise on paper. That's right, under the original bill put forward by Labour, national emissions from coal and gas could go up, and were in fact forecast to go up. The government would be able to claim that they would succeeded in reducing national emissions all thanks to some sly Climate accounting, and emissions would, of course, go up because the government's bill uh, that they originally uh, brought to the House backed in new coal and gas developments, some 116 in the pipeline, in front of the government right now. Now, even by if by some stroke of magic, the bill in its original form had actually reduced actual emissions any climate gain would have been completely written off by just one new project alone, the Burrup hub in my home state of Western Australia. What we see in this reality is a community in Western Australia forced to take up the fight against these projects directly because they know their government will do nothing more than tinker around the edges On climate policy. One of the members of my team, somebody I am proud to call a colleague, Joanna Partica, recently took up this very fight uh, with her brave protest against Woodside as part of the Disrupt Borough Hub campaign and I want to pay tribute to that courageous activist group uh, this evening. For her climate activism, Uh, like many others engaged in similar actions around the country, Jo is being pursued by the police. She had her home raided by the counter-terrorism police. Now this is the dystopian reality that the government has created. The preeminent global climate body sounds the alarm for immediate action and the brave folks responding to that alarm are being, uh, being criminalised. Meanwhile, the government quietly shuffles the papers around, trying not to draw attention to themselves. This reality is created because the government, particularly this Labor government, along with its counterpart at the state level, functions basically as a subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry. Their friends, the oil, uh, the oil and gas barons, masquerade Uh, as members upstanding in their nature of the WA community while they play the role as their elected representatives in this place. A thinly veiled front for Woodside, for Rio Tinto and for Chevron. That's the reality of who the Greens have been negotiating with through the course of this process. That is the reality of who the government is up against in this fight. Now our amendments that the Greens have secured ensure that a real pollution will actually go down. What a radical idea, and not just in paper, not just on paper. The introduction of a hard cap on actual emissions, one that will be ratcheted down over time is a welcome step, as is uh, secured by our amendments. Uh, The work to rein in dodgy offsets, ensuring big polluters can't continue to buy their way out of responsibility to abate emissions. Our amendments as a whole, we believe, will place a huge financial burden um, on many of the 116 coal projects in the pipeline under the government, making it less likely um, for them to ultimately go ahead but it is the community's right to know as this legislation, improved as it has been, is considered before the the Senate tonight, how often was Woodside consulted in the crafting of the original piece of legislation. This company who treats my state of Western Australia as its playground, who has made money from our resources for decades, who happily lends a bit of it out here and there to buy social licence from the creative industries, to put themselves forward to the community as a friend of the community, all the while profiting off the extraction and burning of chemicals and pollutions that ruin our environment. So how often, Minister, were they at the table? during the course of the crafting of this legislation.
1: So if you're looking for action this week, contact Greenpeace about their Wales, Not Woodside campaign. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion
3: When you think of community... Uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative.
1: Thank you.
0: When the world has gone crazy and it's all becoming clear. When they're gunning down our comrades, and it seems the end is near, as they're loading up the launchers for the tear gas grenades, we can take off our bandanas and kiss behind the barricades. When it's madness all around, and you can see this at a glance, we will sing and we will cry, we will laugh and we will dance. As they shout their marching orders Beneath the helicopter blades We shall seize the moment For a kiss behind the barricades They will try to break our spirit And at times they may succeed But our love for the world Is stronger than their greed When the building is surrounded And hope begins to fade In my final hour A kiss behind the barricades As the movement grows There will be hills and bends But at the center of the struggle Are your lovers and your friends And the more we hold each other up The less we can be swayed Here's the love and solidarity, and a kiss behind the barricades.
4: This is Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. In this series, we're taking you inside the UN's era-defining climate report, via the hearts and minds of the scientists from
5: all around the world who wrote it. So I grew up on the north coast of Iceland, Akureyri is the town, so it's in a narrow fjord. This is Tolly. My name is Guðfinna Aðalgeistóttir, but I have a much easier nickname, Tolly, that I go by internationally. And I study glaciers, and I have done that in the last two, almost three decades, so I'm observing how the glaciers are responding to climate change.
6: She's someone that looks like she has a Viking heritage, you know, she's quite tall and she has blonde hair and these piercing blue eyes and just a really easy
5: smile.
4: When I spoke to her, I asked her what her childhood was like growing up on the north coast of Iceland.
5: As a kid, I really enjoyed winter, so I was playing in the snow and I learned very early to ski, and I loved skiing, so that was kind of my favorite thing to do, because you can actually go much faster than running. And then later, as a teenager, I was fortunate to join the Scouts, and there was kind of like a winter skiing program. And then we went on a five-day hike with skis, and everything. we were carrying everything on our backs. And then we camped out during a whole Easter break. So I did this for five times when I was a teenager, from 14 to 19 years old. She told me something kind of unexpected about
4: those camping trips.
5: Waking up in the morning in a tent, my feeling was always that it became much more silent when the snow had arrived. The whole atmosphere with the snow in it becomes very still, crystal clear. And, and sometimes I feel like that the, the silence is kind of banging on the eardrums because it's absolutely no sound at all. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, for example, with the IPCC report, I can go back to this total stillness. I have not
4: experienced silence like that, I don't think. What, what, what can you see and hear
5: or not hear? So stepping out in my vision, I see a horizon that the lower half is white and the upper half is light blue, like the sky. So it's basically only two colours, blue and white, and total silence.
4: You're listening to Fear and Wonder, brought to
6: you by The Conversation. I'm Dr Joel Gerges and I'm a climate scientist at the Australian National University. I'm also a lead author for the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
4: And I'm Michael Green. I'm a journalist and a friend of Joelle's. And in this podcast, we're exploring the life of these hugely influential IPCC reports and the kind of thinking and feeling that goes into them. The series came about because I happened to drop in on Joelle on New Year's Day, 2020. Uh, We were driving down the coast and it was the day after my in-law's house burned down during Australia's black summer bushfires. And Joelle at that time was up to her neck working on the IPCC reports. Being there with you at such an intense time made me think about how I really don't talk to you about climate science. And more than that, I really have no idea how we know what we know about climate change. And so when these IPCC reports came out, I decided to speak to you and to other scientists from all around the world about the science that goes into them and what it feels like to carry that knowledge.
6: My job is both really fascinating and terrifying. You know, to be doing this kind of work at this crucial moment in human history is is extraordinary. But I definitely feel like the science itself and how we know what we know is also really interesting when we take the time to, to tell these stories that we often don't get to hear.
4: In the first episode, we heard about some older natural and human records that show us how the climate's changing. And so today we're continuing that trail to the present day.
6: Some people describe the last two decades as the golden era of observations in climate science. There have been some enormous advances in the way that we monitor the Earth's climate.
4: I had no idea about this golden era, Joelle, so in this episode, we're investigating. What are some of the new ways that scientists are observing the changing climate and especially sea level rise?
6: So, our first Lead author meeting was in June 2018. And it was in Guangzhou, which is a giant industrial city in southern China. And then the first day was this plenary of all of the gathered scientists, like, you know, 260 of us had a very formal proceedings with, with government officials there. And you look around the room and there quite literally is the people just from every corner of the world. And also there's a lot of men. There's only about 25% of the authors for Working Group One are women. So looking out, you know, it was one of those things that was a little bit um, daunting. Mm-hmm. So after spending hours in our chapter meetings, finally we were set free for our first break and we were all lined up in the,
5: the lunch queue. And I just kind of bumped into Joelle when we were standing with our plates and we sat down together and, and had a relaxing chat after quite hard discussions in the, in the morning. <laughs> That first meeting of the lead authors was quite overwhelming because their task felt really big and almost impossible to do. And I remember sitting there and thinking that I can't do this. And then I realized that nobody can do it. And then after a little contemplation, I thought, well, even though we can't do it, we really have to do it. So then we just have to go on and carry on. So what what is it that's so overwhelming? Gosh,
6: well, we literally have the weight of the world on our shoulders. If you stop and you think about what it's like to be a climate scientist at this moment in time, and not only just the task, but also just the amount of time that we have to do it is pretty limited.
4: Is there a particular place like you're feeling distress of the first IPCC meeting? You're going to close your eyes and take yourself somewhere. Where would you go?
6: It would be my local beach where a little bit like Tolly, what I can see is really powder white sands and then I see blue, with the blue of the ocean and the blue of the sky. And that is my happy place. And I guess that's the sort of place I go to calm myself and to remember that there's a big picture out there.
4: Maybe you should take me there too. Sounds kind of <laughs> <quite laughs> nice. It's the best.
6: But I think what I liked about Tolly's response was that it's it's a really deep, long-term connection that people have with the natural landscape. So she was out there as a child hiking and, you know, skiing. And and that became something that really fueled her fascination for, you know, becoming a scientist and going to university and learning about how those frozen parts of the planet work. And now she's one of the leading experts in, in her field. And I think that it's, it's really beautiful. And when you do talk to other scientists, many of us do have that connection with the natural world.
4: And what made you go into science?
6: Well, for me, it was really about seeing extremes playing out in Australia. And it was this particular bushfire season in 1994 when I was a high school student. And it was ferocious. And it was one of those things that I really wanted to understand how can the weather just disrupt society in such a huge way. And for me also, I, I grew up in Sydney and I was really, I loved the ocean and the coast but it wasn't really until a lot later in life that I had the opportunity to live by the sea and that to me has just been, you know, it's my happy place.
4: So I actually spent quite a bit of time talking to Tolly in the end, Um, once while she was in Alaska for a conference and she had COVID and then a couple of times in Reykjavik and I I can definitely see why she was such a great lunch friend.
5: Hi, Michael. I'm testing now. She Uh, even
4: agreed to document a field trip for me measuring the glacial melt
5: driven about two hours from Reykjavik and we're still half an hour away from the glacier. But then in the Institute car are sitting with me, Hakan, Hakan He's a Student from the UK and uh, he's working on... Really she
4: sent me recordings and chatted places. with me like all office. the way along this field
5: trip. And uh, also is Aud Vincent. It was so a
4: very late at night for me and Looking I was sitting out in my office but I really felt like I was there with, the the her with her on the way to the, the glacier. The car
5: is Mikkel Lauritsen. He's a PhD student from Denmark. I'm
4: just going to leave them there all driving We're together, running together running to the glacier and back. play you some more of my other chats with Tolly. So she was telling me how she got into glaciology.
5: When I was a student at the university in Iceland, I got a summer job which brought me on the biggest glacier in Iceland. And after that summer and that experience on the glacier, I got the glacier bacteria. And in Iceland, this is a real thing that once you're bitten by the glacier bacteria, you are there is no way back, really. So we have this Icelandic glaciology society where people with the glacier bacteria gather and they kind of support each other in getting on the glacier as much as they can so so that's very helpful
4: (laughs) and so what is this bug why does it how did it get you
5: yeah well i think it's the immenseness of the landscape like how big and and this glacier in iceland is the biggest ice cap in Europe, if you want to count Iceland in Europe, but it's definitely the biggest one in in Iceland. It's about 8,000 square kilometres, so it's uh, about 10% of the whole Iceland. And travelling across it took us once five days to walk across it.
4: When you got that research job, it was like the mid-90s. What were you doing?
5: What we're doing is measure the mass balance. So the mass balance is
6: just the gain or loss of ice from
5: the system. So in the springtime, we go and measure how much snow accumulated during the wintertime. And then in the same location, in the autumn, we go and measure how much was melted or compacted during the summertime. By doing measurements on many locations, it's about 60 locations on the big ice cap, Vatnajökull, then we can an assessment of the health of the glacier but what we have seen since mid 90s is that the the melt during the summer is actually larger than the accumulated snow during the winter time so the glacier is losing mass so it loses about half up to one meter every year so it's you know gradually getting smaller
4: so i'm just interrupting here with a little update from tolly's field trip
5: So we have now arrived to the parking place by solheim So we are having a little bit lunch. Mikkel is eating a sandwich. We've been eating some chocolate in the car. And in a few minutes we'll be ready to go.
4: What do you actually know about Tully's research?
6: Not a huge amount. Like, I'm an Australian scientist. I work on droughts and floods in Australia. So part of the, the fascination of talking to someone like her is how often do you ever get to meet somebody who works on glaciers in Iceland? I'd never met anyone like that. Also, just she was talking to me a lot about sea level rise, but to understand sea level rise, you also have to understand how ice is melting.
4: So what's an ice sheet then?
5: Yes, so the difference between glacier and ice sheet is basically the size. And currently we have two ice sheets, one sitting in the Northern Hemisphere, the Greenland ice sheet, and the other one is sitting on the Southern Hemisphere. And the Antarctic ice sheet is about a magnitude larger than the Greenland ice sheet. And they store actually a tremendous amount of water. And maybe to put that into context, the big ice sheet on Antarctica stores so much water that it would raise the sea level about 58 meters if we just very quickly just melted the ice in our mind and put it into the ocean. So 58 meters sea level equivalence, we call it is stored in the big ice sheet of Antarctica. And the big ice sheet on Greenland is storing about seven and a half meter sea level rise equivalent. And then all the glaciers in the world combined stores about 40 centimetres sea level rise equivalent, so less than half a metre. So that's a big difference.
6: So what's really interesting here is that even though the glaciers are so much smaller, they've actually been melting more rapidly, so they've been contributing more to sea level rise. But that's changing now because the Greenland ice sheet has started losing mass faster, and it's now the largest contributor to sea level rise.
4: Um, and so, And how do you study what's happening on an ice sheet?
5: Yeah, so that's that's slightly harder because it's a, it's a vast vast ice sheets and it's really hard measuring like points on the ice sheets are not really giving the whole pictures. And therefore the age of the satellites or the the emergence of satellites has really been like a really big step forward. That's Two satellites, we call them GRACE, so it's a gravity experiment. So they are measuring the the pull of the ice sheets on the satellites.
4: So she's talking about these twin satellites, which were first launched in 2002, called GRACE, which stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. And they fly about 220 kilometres apart.
5: So any two objects have gravitational effect on each other, and the Greenland Ice and Antarctic Ice do that to both the ocean and the satellites that are flying above it.
6: As the first satellite passes over the ice sheet, the extra mass pulls it slightly ahead of the other one, just like a tiny bit. They can sense these changes as small as one tenth of a human hair.
5: It's not an absolute measurement, so it's a, so it's a relative. So, so then the satellite goes again above the ice sheet and measure the difference. So the, the kind of pattern between the difference between the two satellites can then be interpolated into mass changes on the surface. And we see seasonal changes, so the winter snow that comes on top of the ice it is is visible as increased mass, and then the decrease in <clears throat> during the summer is then also measured. So it's a continuous measurement. And what we are observing now is that the mass loss every year is slightly greater than the mass gain during the winter. So this is why we can tell that the Greenland sheet is losing mass, that it's uh, virtually certain. And that's because of those measurements that are, you know, fraction of a millimeter, the distance change between two satellites can detect the mass changes for both IC, both Greenland and Antarctica.
3: You're listening to Fear and Wonder, and we'll be back after a short break. I'm Tim Flannery, Chief Counselor of the Climate Council. We are proud sponsors of the Fear and Wonder podcast. The Climate Council is Australia's own independent, evidence-based organisation on climate science, impacts and solutions. In 2013, the Federal Government abolished the Climate Commission, a trusted source of climate change information for the Australian public. But within days, thousands of everyday Australians chipped in to create a new, independent and community-funded organisation, the Climate Council. Since then, we've gone from strength to strength, So what does the Climate Council do? We're now a high-impact organisation that's shaping a conversation on climate consequences and action at home and abroad. We advocate for climate policies and solutions that can rapidly drive down emissions based on the most up-to-date climate science and information. We do this in partnership with our incredible community, thousands of generous, passionate supporters and donors who've backed us from day one. If you want to be part of the change, join us. Visit climatecouncil.org.au slash the conversation. Welcome back to Fear and Wonder.
4: In this episode, we're hearing about the new ways that scientists are monitoring changes in the Earth's climate. And right now, we're on a field trip with Tolly to measure glacial melt in Iceland.
5: We stand now below the glacier and uh, at the shore of the lake, It's about maybe five, seven degrees, and we all have hats on and gloves because we don't want to get cold when we get on the. Uh, glacier and Parkhan has already connected the the GPS instrument and that will track our path when we walk on the glacier. And looking up we see the sand that the glacier has been pushing up and also ashes that is appearing as the glacier is retreating and so quite a lot of uh, black sand within the ice but then the white ice in between. So we are getting ready to uh, walk on the ice up to the measurement location where we would do the measurement That is our goal today.
6: Because the planet is warming so fast, these kinds of measurements are critically important for understanding how the landscape is responding to climate change.
5: So what we have now is more certainty, longer time series basically, And the longer time series indicate that there is a variability in mass loss, but the mass loss of both the ice sheets, the big ice sheets of Greenland and Antarctica, and all the glaciers in the world is actually increasing.
6: As well as the satellite mass balance measurements Tolly talked about earlier, we also use satellite measurements of changes in the surface heights or the elevations of ice sheets and glaciers, and they stretch a decade further back.
5: The, the combined mass loss of Greenland and Antarctica has fourfolded, so it's four times faster in the decade that has just passed compared to the first decade that the measurement started in 1992. And it isn't good news for the glaciers either. They're also melting at a faster rate. The trend that we are losing the, the frozen water, the glaciers on the surface into the ocean and the sea level is rising, it's continuing. The larger glaciers that are in maybe a little bit colder climate, they're integrating the changes that have happened over decades. So that also means that even though the warming, so the global warming, would stop today, the glacier will still remember the warming that happened in the past three decades Mm -hmm. and then continue to lose mass so we have walked to the measuring station now the lowering of the surface is nearly five meters how quickly can we do this in our heads so seven point seven eleven minus 229 Nine so yeah 422 no. no 29 so i heard yeah three sorry. yeah so it has to be two there so three Seven, eight, nine, no. No, it's,
4: so I got that message from Tully really and decided nine, I needed to call her directly to test seven, out her sounds. Hello. Hi Tully, how are you?
5: Good. Uh, you are a no speaker And uh, we, we just estimated that the surface has lowered 4.8 metres and it's about 7 centimetres a day lowering every day.
4: Okay. And how does that compare with other years?
5: Yes, well uh, my, my estimate from previously is about that similar. Six to eight over the last 10 years is you know very very common. Uh-huh.
4: And you're doing another the other measurement as well, which is the flow.
5: Yes. With, uh, with the GPS instrument, we be, we just placed it very close to the borehole mm-hmm. and it's been measuring now uh, yeah nearly half an hour, so we'll get a quite an accurate position measuring of the, the pole now. Mm-hmm. I would guess, just from you know looking around here, that it may have moved 50 to 100 metres over the summer. Wow. Wow, that
4: is much further than I thought it would be.
5: Yeah, so forward forward motion of the glacier, yes. So the glacier is doing both. It's actually moving forward but then it's getting thinner. So nothing catastrophic here yet, but we see that the, the lagoon or the lake in front of the glacier is getting bigger as the glacier is uh, getting shorter. You
4: sound like you're having a lot of fun. <laughs>
5: yeah. Well, four of us. We're, we're actually getting a little bit cold now. So I ah. think, you know, heading back down would be useful
4: well hopefully you've got more chocolate to eat in the car
5: yes exactly yes and we measured the wire six times and we discarded two uh, measurements and we came to a very good conclusion of the length so i think that was also a good teamwork
4: i enjoyed listening to you trying to do the do the maths as well
5: (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to
4: include it There's one other thought from Tully that really actually struck me when I was interviewing her, and I wasn't exactly sure how she meant it. I'm curious about you talking about the glaciers having memory or us needing to do certain things for the benefit of the glaciers. So so some people would just be like, oh, well, the glacier is a functional thing, it doesn't matter. I'm kind of curious about how you feel about the glaciers and why they're important.
5: So through the observations and the knowledge that we have from measurements all over the world, it's become clear that the glaciers are really good indicators of what's going on. And they're also kind of interesting in the sense that they, in the ice sheets, the Greenland and Antarctica more specifically, they store the record of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere in tiny air bubbles that have been trapped in the glacier so we can actually have a continuous record of the composition of the atmosphere in the past. So that's the air bubbles inside the ice, but the ice itself is precipitation that fell in the past. So both the water and the air in between give us records. So, so it's, it's very cool, what we should we call them, cool beasts, They the glaciers. So they are, they're of course not alive, but, but they both record the past, and show us how the changes have happened because they are responding to it. So the the size and the shape and we can maybe say the health of the glaciers are actually the indicators of what the climate is doing. So I think they're, they're good allies to have because they record and they actually respond and give us information that maybe would be harder to comprehend otherwise.
7: I grew up in um, a very kind of um, suburban environment, actually, not far from London. We used to go down to Brighton, which is on the coast just south of London, because we had family there a lot, and that was by the seas, you know, going swimming in the sea, jumping off sea walls and things. Um, I always felt a little bit nervous in the water. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this kind of... I guess lots of people have this, and it's, it's, it's a bit irrational in the UK, but fear of
4: sharks or things
7: being in the water, you know, a little
4: bit. This is Dr. Matt Palmer.
7: My name is Matt Palmer um, I work at the Met Office Hadley Centre in the UK where I lead the sea level projection work that we do there and I'm also an associate professor at the University of Bristol.
4: He's an oceanographer and a musician and a surfer actually despite his fear of sharks and we are listening to a recording that he made at that same beach in Brighton that was so important to him as a kid.
6: So we've just heard from Tolly about the way that we measure the melting parts of the earth, so the ice caps and glaciers, but there's more to sea level rise than just that. Matt is one of the global experts on sea level rise and he worked on some of the key parts of the IPCC report.
7: My interest in oceanography, I think, can be traced back to some books by Jacques Cousteau, who was a famous French oceanographer, and my dad was a great book lover. I think I would have been like 10 or 11 or something like that when I saw these books. You know, learning about scuba diving, I mean, how amazing is that? Like, when you're a kid, you cannot believe that people can put on these suits and go and breathe underwater. It sounds bonkers, doesn't it? It kind of, I mean, if you take a step back, wow, we can breathe underwater. Yeah, there's something very exciting and exploratory about that. And it just seemed a a fascinating and slightly mysterious and also there's almost a slight sense of fear about the ocean, if you see what I mean. It's a powerful thing.
4: Right, so let's fast forward to March 2002 and Matt is doing his PhD. He's aboard the Royal Research Ship Charles Darwin.
6: So at this time, we really didn't know too much about the deep ocean. We knew a lot about the surface ocean. We have measurements from about 1950, but in terms of understanding those deeper layers of the ocean, it was really still a scientific frontier.
7: Every measurement that we took of the subsurface ocean had to be done kind of in a direct way. For the best quality kind of information, we would have to take a research vessel and actually drive a ship along a line across the ocean and stop periodically. So I went on one of these research cruises. We traveled from Durban in South Africa over to Fremantle in Australia, at a nominal latitude of 32 degrees south. And it took us 42 days to cross that because we have to stop every six hours or so and drop a measurement package down to the bottom of the ocean and pull it back up again. And that process takes about six hours. So what that means, the cost of those observations is so high that we really had these very limited, what they call transects, so slices through the ocean taken by research vessels. And that's what we had to work with. Very, very limited data set for studying change and variability in the ocean.
6: Matt's just been talking about ways that oceanographers actually measure changes in ocean temperature. There've been some really major advances in how scientists now do that work.
7: The first Argo deployments were made in the early 2000s. Argo floaters
3: away, you can uh, put some turns on, over.
7: And actually I ended up making some of the first Argo deployments within the Indian Ocean. We deployed, I think, about 15 floats along that line. So an Argo float is about a metre and a half tall and it's a cylinder usually a bright color so you can see it when you deploy it in the water and if you need to go and retrieve it you can find it they're they're kind of robotic floats they drift at a nominal what they call parking depth a kilometer down and then every 10 days or so they will sink even further down to two kilometers two thousand meters And then as they come up to the surface, they'll take a profile of temperature and salinity. So you get a profile of those and then they beam the information back via satellite and it gets it gets hoovered up by the data centers. There's thousands of these things drifting around the ocean, taking continuous measurements, and they've just really brought about a revolution in our ability to understand ocean change and ocean variability. And the other amazing thing about them is that all the data is available in real time, completely freely available, and that is, that is not the case for all oceanographic measurements.
4: You can find a map online showing the locations of the Argo floats, and there are just like thousands of them bobbing away. And a bit like with the satellite data that we heard about from Tolly earlier, like I'm also kind of wowed by how, how recent and how, how much of a change it is in our scientific knowledge.
7: The atmosphere doesn't have much of a memory. It's kind of a more chaotic, less predictable system because it doesn't have big stores of heat and it can't hold much fresh water, whereas the ocean, of course, stores a lot of heat and fresh water. More than 90% of the excess solar radiation, which is trapped in the Earth's system as a result of greenhouse gases being in the atmosphere that ends up in the ocean. And so if you want to measure the current trajectory of climate change, one of the real fundamental measures of that is the rate of ocean warming. And you need to know that accurately, I would say. And really, Argo really allows us to do that.
6: So one of the main advances in the IPCC report is that we can now measure changes in the deep ocean. So some of these Argo floats can go down as far as six kilometres.
7: We know that the surface of the Earth is warmed about 1.1 degrees since the pre-industrial so so since about 1850 or so the ocean near the surface will have warmed a similar amount probably a bit less than a degree but what happens with the ocean is that that warming signal kind of gets mixed down into the oceans and actually it propagates in an interesting way because it's not just from the surface down so the very deepest waters in the ocean are formed at high latitudes in the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere And so the warming signal is kind of coming into the ocean depths through that way. So we get an intensified warming signal near the surface, but also we're starting to see the warming at the bottom of the ocean. And then the intermediate layers are actually relatively insulated from these sources. And it will take much longer for those warming signals to kind of populate the whole ocean, if you like. So that's the basic pattern.
6: Oceanography is amazing. I'm not an oceanographer, but I know a bit because I teach a little bit of it. It takes decades to, for sometimes deep ocean to upwell all the way to the surface and down again.
7: The magnitudes of temperature change are correspondingly smaller than we see for surface temperature. But actually, when you add it all up and you work out what it means in units of energy, so in joules, that's where this 90% figure comes from.
6: So what Matt's talking about here is that 90% of excess heat ends up in the ocean. So even though the ocean hasn't warmed up quite as fast as the land, it is still warming.
7: Because actually in terms of the heating, a bit like it takes a lot more heat to warm up a a full kettle of water than it does, you know, when you pour in a tiny amount of water to the bottom of the kettle, which is kind of analogous to the surface, obviously it doesn't take much energy to heat that layer up because it's just a very thin layer.
6: People say that global warming is actually ocean warming because of the fact that it's 90% of the uptake of heat. But when you think about it, the planet is covered predominantly by water, about 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by water. So it makes sense that a lot of the heat would be trapped in our ocean
4: There's that old line about how we shouldn't be calling it earth, we should be calling it ocean.
6: (laughs) Yeah, I'd get behind that.
4: Okay, so we've got this better understanding of ocean temperature profiles, thanks to the Argo program, which we've heard about, and we heard earlier about the melting ice. What I want to understand next is how it all adds up to sea level rise, and it turns out that it's both professional and personal for Matt.
7: I live in a place called Limpston, which is quite an old fishing village close to Exeter. I'd say down here you feel much more closely connected to the to the kind of natural environment. There's you know, lower population density and like spectacular coastlines.
4: It's also a place that is in parts very vulnerable to sea level rise. Built in the eighteen forties, destroyed in 2014. We lost a
7: section of the Dawlish the railway line, main rail route, key to this region's economy. Tonight, dangling. In midair, it's not actually very far from my house. It's a few miles. Terrifying theme park ride, doesn't it? The waves have just taken away the groundwork, the ballast that used to be underneath the track, leaving Brunel's famous railway track just. And a big, big section of the seawall was washed out by a storm that came through. And obviously, so I'm someone who works on sea level rise projections a lot. And in some ways, you know, these kind of events are the sorts of things that we know are going to become more common in future unless we're able to adapt our coastline, you know, to cope with these new extremes.
6: So the IPCC report shows that sea level has actually risen globally by about 20 centimetres since 1900. And it is now rising faster than any other point in the last 3000 years. And that speed of sea level rise is actually accelerating.
4: Okay, so I want to understand how we know what we know. So how do we get a measurement of global sea level?
7: We get that from two places. We get it from the tide gauge measurements, which have been around. So the longest tide gauge measurements date back to pre-19th century. So they're, they're really long records, but they're geographically sparse. Since 1993 or so, we've got the satellite altimeter measurements, which have much, much better spatial coverage. And we're much, much more confident in the changes of sea level Thereafter.
6: Those are some of the satellites that Tolly mentioned, not the gravity ones, which came later, but the ones that measure elevation. And so we've already heard about the two primary drivers of global sea level rise. So there's the addition of water to the sea from the melting of ice on land, and there's also the expansion of the ocean from water as it warms up. And we know much more about both of those contributors to sea level rise because of the observational systems we've just heard about.
7: There's huge complementarity between. Argo observations and the satellite measurements of the sea surface height from the altimeters, which tells us what the total sea level is. And so if we then subtract the thermal expansion part, which we measure from Argo, we can work out how much extra water must be entering the system from the melting of ice or changes in land water storage. And all these things are important things to know both for understanding the variability and what's happened to date, but also thinking about what's going to happen in the future.
4: So how do you then come up with local sea level rise projections?
7: To get from global projections to regional or local sea level projections, each one of those components, the easiest way to think about it, is has a spatial pattern of change associated with it. Now for the ice sheets and the glaciers, this is a really cool piece of science. Is primarily to do with changes in Earth's gravity field, right? So when we lose some ice from Antarctica, because that mass has been lost, we actually change the gravity field.
6: This is the same principle we were talking about earlier, that objects have a gravitational effect on one another. And that effect varies depending on exactly how heavy they are.
7: And so locally, although maybe it seems a bit counterintuitive, because there's less gravitational attraction pulling the water towards the ice sheet, the water actually retreats a little bit from the ice sheet and we get a sea level fall. So locally, what we get is a fall, but further away kind of on the opposite side of the globe, usually about two thirds of the way around the globe, what we get is the largest part of the rise from Antarctica.
6: So as the ice sheet melts, the sea level rises, but it rises unevenly around the globe because of the effect of gravity.
7: Close to the ice sheet, we actually get a negative contribution. So it has this has this spatial pattern. It's kind of a bulge around the middle. Yeah, it, like exactly. It just has this spatial pattern that we need to account for. And the same is true of Greenland ice sheet and the same is true of the glaciers.
6: Matt looks at a lot of different things when he's making local sea level rise projections. But one really interesting thing is the movement of the land.
7: It's not just the sea level rising. Sometimes it's a combination of the land falling or, or the land rising as well. So the main process that would control that and, and is a worldwide phenomena is glacial isostatic adjustment. So this is sometimes called post-glacial rebound. So it's basically to do with the ice distribution during the ice age. And when that ice was lost, so the very viscous but somewhat fluid mantle layer of the solid earth is still rearranging itself in response to that ice that was there and kind of pressing down.
4: Wow, it's taken its sweet time, isn't
7: it? It's Yeah, it's one of those crazy things, isn't it? Like geological time scales are really hard to, <laughs> I think, for the human brain to deal with because it's, uh, you know, these things that carry on for thousands and thousands of years. Within the UK, we know that Scotland and the north of the UK, actually there's vertical land uplift. And in the south of the UK, the opposite is happening. The land is falling and so that's obviously exacerbating sea level rise. So the importance depends in future on how high our greenhouse gas emissions are for the northern uk and in scotland in particular future generations if we were able to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions sufficiently could see a stop you know complete stop of sea level rise because a reduced rate of sea level rise in future would be counteracted by the vertical land uplift that's quite a tantalising prospect, and maybe motivates us to think, well, yeah, there really is a case for mitigation to save us some some trouble in future. Hello,
4: my old right around the time that Matt and you started working on the IPCC, Matt was actually starting to record some of his own songs. I don't know. It's maybe it sounds a bit. Um, <laughs> it sounds. A, it wasn't a deliberate
7: thing, but I ended up writing this song about sea level rise called "The Flood," and I don't remember it. being premeditated often I just try to put my brain in neutral and I just start singing something we flood,
3: the which the world has
6: for old Matt his science is even chasing him into his uh, subconscious. It's interesting.
4: It's not really a surprise that he wrote a song about sea level rises. Not
6: at all. Gosh, when you work on this stuff day and night, it's, it's really no surprise. It's just saturated into his creative output as well.
7: The most dire outcomes for sea level rise will be like something just no one has ever seen. I mean, the... Summary for policymakers states very clearly that under high greenhouse gas emissions, global sea level rise in excess of 15 metres by 2300 cannot be ruled out, and that is just a big number. There are obviously places in the world which are just not equipped to deal with those levels of sea level. so low-lying islands or countries such as Bangladesh, low adaptive capacity really and just so much low-lying land, that is, is a bit of a scary prospect. And almost whatever we do, we're going to have to deal with some degree of sea level rise. Often the projections only go to about 2100. And historically, there's been this kind of invisible curtain at 2100 where we don't get to see what happens next. And I think if you're going to make decisions, you need to kind of know a bit better what the end game is for sea level rise. And my view on that is the minimum adaptation that we're going to have to deal with is kind of one to two metres Even in the best case scenario, over the next few hundred years. So, we have a bit of time, but we're still going to have to probably deal with that kind of level of rise. But the key point is that by limiting the surface warming, by achieving net zero CO2 emissions as quickly as possible, that is the best route to limiting the kind of future sea level risk we're gonna expose ourselves to. So it's still very sensitive to the total emissions. It's just that we won't see the full consequences of those CO2 emissions for a very, very long time to come. And so it means that the actions taken or not taken in the coming years or decades on particularly carbon dioxide emissions are gonna have implications that extend, frankly, for millennia to come in terms of committed sea level rise.
6: We've just gone on this journey you know learning about the glaciers and the ice caps and we've just learned about advances in oceanography and sea level rise but ultimately what is the take-home message here things are changing really rapidly and there, there are irreversible components of climate change so even when we do stabilize emissions we're still going to see this stuff play out for a long time both tolly and matt touched on the idea of memory in the frozen parts of the world and in the ocean And I think that's a really important thing to think about because these changes that are being unleashed on the climate system as the earth warms up and it it sort of struggles to find its new equilibrium will reverberate out for centuries to come. And it's something that we'll be living through even a long time after we're gone.
4: This is Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. And next episode, Joelle, we're going to France, to the city of Toulouse, and to a climate conference in the middle of an extreme heatwave in 2019, where scientists worked around the clock to understand how it was affected by climate change. Fear and Wonder is produced by me, Michael Green, and co-hosted by Dr Joelle Gergis from the Australian National University, with sound engineering and design and extra wisdom from John Cheer. Script editing by Nicole Kirby. Thanks to the show's executive producer, Ben Clark and The Conversation's editor, Misha Ketchell. Fear and Wonder is sponsored by the Climate Council. We recorded on Wurundjeri land at the State Library of Victoria. And in this episode, we heard The Flood by the Matt Palmer Band from their debut EP, A Rising Tide. You can find it on all the big music platforms. And finally, Joelle wrote about her experience being an IPCC author in her brand new book called... Humanity's Moment, a climate scientist's case for hope. Go find it online and in all good bookstores.
7: Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter.
1: Thanks tonight to Senator Jordan Steele John from Western Australia, to journalist Michael Green and Dr. Joel Gerges. Plus, thanks to the conversation for permission to take their podcast to a wider audience. The scientists featured tonight were Tolly. Gear's daughter in Iceland, and oceanographer Matt Palmer. The music was by David Rovix from his new album, Save the Messenger. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good
3: luck. This is Cole. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal.
1: It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear... The Climate Action Radio Show. Wildlife
6: Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.